Will you bow with me in prayer? Father, we humble ourselves in your presence this morning, acknowledging that we are not worthy, but you are worthy. And even while we were yet sinners, Father, you sent your son, Jesus, to die for us. Unbelievable. God, I ask that you would forgive us for the distractions, for our laziness, and daily declaring your worthiness through our mouths and through our actions and through our thoughts. Thank you for gathering us together where we, by your grace, are reminded to focus our attention, to focus our mind, our passions, our heart, our priorities on what is important, and that is you are worthy. So thank you for the gift of this morning. We love you. Thank you for giving us the health and strength to be here this morning. For those who have joined us online, thank you for the ability we have through technology together to declare that you are worthy. Speak to us through your word now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I made a mistake in the first service, and I I couldn't find any hanky or tissues, and uh, once we got going, it was too late to try and get some, so I have come prepared at the 11 o'clock service for, uh, for our service this morning. You know what? I was sitting in my office this morning, listening to the worship team uh, prepare to lead us in worship this morning, and as I sat there and I was listening to them, the thought that went through my own head personally, and then we prayed about it at our pre-service prayer, is how much do I come to church with the idea of expectation. Do I expect that God, as we gather as his people and worship him and as we hear his word preached to us, do I come to church expecting that God is gonna move among us? That lives are gonna change. Transformation is gonna happen. Maturity as disciples is gonna go forward. Or do I just come to church and enjoy it? I would encourage each one of us before we enter the doors of this building every Sunday, just Let God know, God, I am here today expecting you to do work in my life. As I worship you, as I give you the praise that you are due, as I listen to your word, I'm expecting something to happen in my life. Because otherwise, sometimes we can just get stuck in a rut, and we just keep coming every week and doing what we're doing, and it's good. But you know what? God wants to do something in our lives, and I just encourage us, come every week with expectation. Amen? Well, I've titled my sermon this morning, Don't Underestimate underestimating. And when I, I always run my titles through my family, my kids went, really? I said, yeah, really. Don't underestimate underestimating. In other words, we need to be careful in believing something to be smaller or less important than it actually is. When we believe something is smaller or less important than it actually is, it's dangerous. I'm sure all of us have been in situations where we found ourselves saying, wow, I sure underestimated that. Maybe it was something you purchased and it was more expensive than you thought it was going to be. Perhaps it was a test that you wrote and it was a lot more difficult than you thought. Or perhaps you underestimated how spicy something was going to be. I've learned my lesson that way. I love spicy food, but a dear sister in this church who I won't name makes the best jerk chicken. And a couple years ago, she gave me a dish And I realized that day, not all jerk chicken is created equally. And she killed my esophagus. And I can't eat jerk chicken anymore now, right? Because I underestimated how strong it would be. Or 
There's even people in the auditorium this morning who maybe underestimated that they're a little older than they used to be and that there could be some long-term effects from thinking you're still young and you can go cliff jumping into the Ottawa River. I won't mention them by name, but Kenny, how is your shoulder this morning? <laughs> he's loaded up on Advil, so he's all good. And depending on what it is we underestimated, the consequences could possibly have just been fairly minor, or they could be very serious. And I remember my parents telling me anytime we were near the ocean, whether it was in South Africa or in Kenya, I would always hear them say, don't go too far out, be careful of the undertow. And that is because sadly, a fellow missionary in Kenya one day underestimated the power of the undertow while vacationing with his family in Mombasa. And so he went over the barrier reef and then the strength of the undertow just started to pull him out to the point, sadly, where he lost his fight and tragically, he drowned. You see, my fear that I want to communicate the burden that the Lord put on my heart for my life this week, and I believe he wants us to understand this morning, is sometimes in our walk as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, we get too comfortable. We just get too cozy. And we start to not take things as seriously as we once did. And we begin to underestimate things about ourselves and things about God that if we're not careful, can result in serious consequences that impact not only our own lives personally, but also the lives of those around us. And we will see this played out in our text this morning. So if you have your Bibles, I'd ask you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 1, where we will continue our series on Elijah. We start a new book today, and we'll be beginning in verse 1. After Ahab's death, Moab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah had fallen through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria and injured himself. So he sent messengers saying to them, go and consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, to see if I'll recover from this injury. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, go up and meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and ask them, is it because there's no god in Israel that you're going off to consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore, this is what the Lord says, you will not leave the bed you are lying on, you will certainly die. So Elijah went. When the messengers returned to the king, he asked them, why have you come back? A man came to meet us, they replied, and he said to us, go back to the king who sent you and tell him, this is what the Lord says. Is it because there's no God in Israel that you are sending messengers to consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you will not leave the bed you are lying on, you will certainly die. The king asked them, what kind of man was it who met you and told you this? They replied, he had a garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. The king said, that was Elijah, the Tishbite. Then he sent to Elijah a captain with his company of 50 men. The captain went up to Elijah who was sitting on the top of a hill and said to him, man of God, the king says, come down. Elijah answered the captain, if I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his men. At this, the king said to, sent to Elijah another captain with his 50 men. The captain said to him, man of God, this is what the king says, come down at once. If I am a man of God, Elijah replied, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then the fire of God fell from heaven and consumed him and his 50 men. Stats are not going too well. Verse 13, so the king sent a third captain with his 50 men. This third captain went up and fell on his knees before Elijah, man of God, he begged, please have respect for my life and the lives of these 50 men, your servants. 
See, fire has fallen from heaven and consumed the first two captains and all their men, but now have respect for my life. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So Elijah got up and went down with him to the king. He told the king, this is what the Lord says. Is it because there's no God in Israel for you to consult that you have sent messengers to consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Because you have done this, you will never leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. So here we are. After reigning in Israel for 22 years, King Ahab, who the scriptures say there was no one like him in terms of how he sold himself to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, dies in battle, and his son Ahaziah takes over as king and is ruling from their palace just like his dad was in Samaria. And in verse 1, we see that right away Ahaziah is faced with a national crisis when Moab, one of the Israel's long-standing enemies, decides after 40 years to rebel against Israel's authority. And while he is figuring out how to deal with this national challenge on his hands, he literally falls into a personal challenge. When he injures himself, falling through the lattice of his rooftop room. You see, it was very common for houses in that area, and still today, to have these rooftop rooms, which were enclosed with crossbars of woven, uh, interwoven reed or wood strips that would shut out the direct sunlight, but yet at the same time allow any cool breezes to run through the room. And as we read in verse 2, it tells us that Ahaziah, the king, falls through the lattice enclosure on his rooftop room. But there's no explanation as to why. And he's laid up in bed, and this is where we find him. And as one author summarized Ahaziah's scenario, the kingdom is as sick as the king, and the Omri dynasty is dying. But more serious than the rebellion of the Moabites, than Ahaziah's injuries caused from his fall, was who he put his faith in to help him in his time of need. You see, as we read, rather than call on Yahweh, the one true God, the God of Israel, who had already proven himself to his people on Mount Carmel, Ahaziah ignores God and instead calls on a local expression of the defeated God of Baal in a place called Ekron. He calls on him to see if he will recover from his injuries. Ahaziah clearly underestimated the consequences of rejecting the one true God and sending messengers to go and consult Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, to see if he'll recover from his injuries. Who's Beelzebub? Beelzebub is a false deity. He's the god of Ekron, known to, known to idol worshipers as the storm god. Apparently, he's renowned for his healing powers and for controlling diseases that were brought on by flies. And this is who the king Ahaziah places his trust in, a false deity that cannot help him, rather than the all-powerful, one true God, Yahweh. So as I read this this week, the question that came to my mind that I was left asking is, why? What motivated Ahaziah to make this decision, to send out messengers to inquire of a powerless, defeated, not even alive God, what the outcome of his injury will be. Well, turn with me back to 1 Kings chapter 22. 1 Kings chapter 22, just flip over one page and look at verse 51 and 53. 
Because there we will discover a major contributing factor to why he made this decision. Beginning in verse 51 of chapter 22, 1 Kings. Ahaziah, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel two years. Listen closely, especially if you are a parent. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord because he followed the ways of his father and mother and of others, Jeroboam, son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. He served and worshipped Baal and aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, just as his father had done. You see, from the record of Ahaziah we have read this morning, I believe there are three things that we need to be careful of not underestimating. The first thing we need to be careful of underestimating is the influence our choices have on others. The influence our choices have on others. You see, the sinful choices you and I make have great potential to negatively shape not only our offspring if you're a parent, but also others around us. Ahaziah did what he did because he was simply following the ways that had been modeled for him. And I love it. It's not just all on the father, but it's also the mother. And it's not just on the family, but it's also people outside the family like Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who caused Israel to sin. He chose to trust in Beelzebub rather than inquire of Elijah, the prophet of the one true God, because of the influence of those around him. And what I found so fascinating is his father did the exact same thing. Turn with me to 2 Chronicles, Chronicles chapter 18. I, I couldn't believe this when I was studying this week. 2 Chronicles chapter 18. Listen to what it says, verses 1 to 8. Now Jehoshaphat had great wealth and honor, and he allied himself with Ahab by marriage. Some years later, he went down to see Ahab in Samaria. This is where now Ahaziah, his son, is ruling from. Ahab slaughtered many sheep and cattle for him and the people with him and urged him to attack Ramoth Gilead. Ahab, king of Israel, asked Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, will you go with me against Ramoth Gilead? Jehoshaphat replied, I am as you are, and my people as your people. We'll join you in the war. But Jehoshaphat also said to the king of Israel, first seek the counsel of the Lord the one true God. Verse five, so the king of Israel brought together the prophets, 400 men. These were not the prophets of the Lord. Back then, kings like Ahab had false prophets who would simply tell him what he wanted to hear. So he calls 400 men and asks them, shall we go to war against Ramoth Gilead or shall I not? Go, they answered, for God will give it into the king's hands. But Jehoshaphat asked, is there no longer a prophet of the Lord here whom we can inquire of? Doesn't that sound familiar to our text this morning? Listen to the answer. The king of Israel answered Jehoshaphat, this is Ahaziah's dad. There is still one prophet through whom we can inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he never prophesies anything good about me, but always bad, he is Micaiah, the son of Imla. Can you believe it? Just like his father, Ahaziah, deliberately is avoiding the counsel from Elijah, the prophet of the Lord, and this is why he sends his messengers to the town of Ekron. What's important about Ekron? Well, it was an unexpected location for him to seek counsel from, because I'm sure he wanted a quick response, but Ekron was some distance from Samaria. 
And different commentators say he sent them there so as to avoid Elijah the prophet. And so here we see as a result of the influence of other people's choices on his life, Ahaziah continues the official promotion of Baal worship. He resists the true prophets of the covenant God and aroused the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, just as his father had done. Sadly, he became an apostate, just like his parents. Now, I want to make sure and be very clear. Ahaziah's choices, his sinful choices, and his behavior are not justified or excused because he was negatively influenced by his family and others who did evil in the eyes of the Lord. You see, brothers and sisters, although he was definitely impacted by others, every one of us, every one of us, whether we've had positive or negative influences in our lives, are still ultimately personally responsible and accountable to Almighty God for the choices that we make. But the power of influence over other people is something I think we can underestimate in our lives if we're not careful. We can get to a dangerous position where we begin to see things as smaller or less important as they actually are. And this is not the case with the God that we serve. In fact, God takes the issue of the power of influence very seriously. He understands the power of influence and how it can work both for evil and for good. And we see this clearly demonstrated in how he established for how he wanted his people to deal with negative influencers. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 13. You will be so surprised by what you read. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 6. Listen how seriously God takes this issue of the power of influence. If your very own brother or your son or daughter or the wife you love or your closest friend secretly entices you, influences you, saying, let us go and worship other gods, gods that neither you nor your ancestors have known, gods of the peoples around you, whether near or far, from one end of the land to the other, do not yield to them or listen to them. Show them no pity. Do not spare them or shield them. You must certainly put them to death. Your hand must be the first in putting them to death. And then the hands of all the people stone them to death because they tried to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Then all Israel will hear and be afraid and no one among you will do such an evil thing again. You read that and you think, man, has God entirely gone off the deep end here? It might seem that way until we consider the power of influence on others from God's perspective. You see, God wanted his people to be holy, to be set apart, to be his people, no matter the cost. He knows that temptations to sin are strong. And he knows that they're even stronger when those whom we love are involved, but we must never waver on God's will, even when those closest to us are influencing us to do so. Do not waver on God's will. You see, we must recognize that we, like Israel before us, are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that we may declare the praises of him who has called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's what it says in 1 Peter 2.9. That is who we are. And even though we may not live in the midst of people in our neighborhoods 
who go about and serve gods represented by idols and graven images. We live, don't kid yourself, in a no less adulterous society where we are all daily being influenced to worship other gods, small g. Like what? Money. Individualism. How about our possessions? How about leisure, sports, sex, comfort, happiness, and all sorts of similar things that if we're not careful, we can start to worship and give our allegiance to over our allegiance to God. And just like Israel of old, when God's people served other gods because they were influenced by those around them who were doing so, so many of us today, including myself, struggle at times to serve both God and all these other things. And if we're not careful, we too will fail miserably. The power of influence is vast. So vast that God, we read it, was willing to have his people, Israel, kill even the most beloved people in their lives if they acted as tempters away from God's will. Now we live under the new covenant and we are not bound to follow their example by overcoming evil with evil, as it says in Romans 12, 21. But the gravity of the concern that Almighty God highlights for us in Deuteronomy should cause us at least to pause, shouldn't it? Let's be careful of underestimating the influence our choices have on others. And so I ask you to ask yourself, as I have done this week, what gods am I tempted to serve by those who are influencing me? Are the choices I'm making, my ways, are they influencing people to walk in obedience to the Lord or to walk away from walking in obedience to the Lord and potentially put themselves in danger? What would be said of those who follow your ways? We read the description of Ahaziah. It said, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord because he followed the, he followed the ways of his father, mother, and Jeroboam. Those who you have influence over, who are now living out their lives, what would be the description of them as people who are following your ways? So how should we live as influencers? 1 Timothy 4.12, take Paul's advice to, to Timothy. It's excellent. Don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers. So this is amongst the body of Christ in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. That's how we should live amongst each other. And then how about with those who are lost? Well, here's what it says in 1 Peter 2.12. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Be a positive, godly influence. Hebrews 10 verse 24 says, let us consider, we should be always thinking about this. How can I spur you? How can you spur me? How can we spur one another on toward love and good deeds? Don't underestimate the influence your choices have on others. Secondly, let's be careful of underestimating the jealousy of God. The jealousy of God. What am I talking about? Listen to what he, God through the writer writes in Exodus chapter 20, beginning in verse two. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. 
You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. Listen closely. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. What does it mean he's jealous? It means he is zealous in the good sense of the word for us. He is zealous for you. He is zealous for me. He is zealous for our loyalty. And we see this aspect of God's character clearly demonstrated in the text we read this morning in how he responds to King Ahaziah's decision to reject him and to place his trust in another. And just like his dad, the scripture says, he arouses the anger of God and God steps in. We read in verse 3, as Ahaziah was sending messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, God counters his actions by sending his own messengers. First, he sends an angelic messenger to Elijah to tell him that he is to go as God's messenger and intercept the king's men on their mission and make a query of the men who are on a mission to actually make an inquiry of a false god. Elijah was asked to do two things. Ask a question, give the prognosis. Ask a question, give the prognosis. What's the question he was to ask? Is it because there's no God in Israel that you are going off to consult Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Here's the prognosis. Therefore, this is what the Lord says. You will not leave the bed you are lying on. You will certainly die. That was not an easy assignment that he was given, was it? That's why we've titled this series, Daring Dudes in Troubling Times. That was quite an assignment to go and to declare the prognosis to the king of what he was actually sending his men to inquire of a false god. But it says he went. And he went, Elijah, fulfilling his purpose of, as God's prophet, continuing to faithfully confront the worship of Baal and to declare to Israel once again that the Lord is God. There is no other. He was given an assignment and he faithfully fulfilled it. As I read that this week, a verse that is very dear to my heart came to my mind. 2 Corinthians 5.20 gives us an assignment. Listen to what it says. We are called Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal, his influence on people's lives through us. We are to implore you. What is our message? Implore people on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. And I had to ask myself, how faithful am I being to the assignment God has given me as an ambassador to influence, to implore on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God? It says Elijah went. He was given an assignment and he went. What would be the description of us? Did we go? We were too distracted. We were nervous. We were scared. He went. Brothers and sisters, we have been given an assignment, a very important assignment, and we need to deliver it. And we see highlighted in the content of the message, the question and the prognosis that Elijah was to deliver to the king's men, Yahweh's jealousy of any worship of any other God. And remember, when you associate jealousy with God, it's always in a pure, perfect, positive sense. It's not like our jealousy of something you might have that I want. No, his jealousy is his zeal for his people. Why? Because he is zealous for us. He will not tolerate our affection for any gods besides him, the one true God. We must not underestimate the truth found in Galatians 6-7 that states, listen closely, God will not be mocked. 
You cannot mock him. If we, like Ahaziah, underestimate the fact that God is a jealous God and we recklessly start to put our faith and our trust in someone or something else other than him, we too should not assume that we will escape facing perhaps even severe consequences as described in the passage we have read this morning. Because God is holy, God is just, and he disciplines those he loves. Yes, God is a God of love, incredibly patient and full of grace. But even in the New Testament, lies and deceptive behavior on the part of his people such as Ananias and Sapphira, he will not tolerate. God will not tolerate no rivals in our lives. He will not tolerate no images. That's why in Isaiah 42, 8, it says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or praise to idols. And this is the central message God is communicating through the record of King Ahaziah that we need to get into our minds and into our hearts. Do not underestimate the jealousy of God. And so I asked myself and I ask you to ask yourself this morning, is there any areas in your life, in my life, where I am risking arousing the anger and the discipline of God? Do my actions reflect that I have forgotten that God is a jealous God? And if the Holy Spirit is bringing something to your mind in your life, a choice that you are making in your life that you know is potentially risking arousing the anger of God, the discipline of God, at the end of the service, I'm going to give you an opportunity to ask Him to forgive you, to confess your sins. Because that's what it says in 1 John 1, 9. We should repent. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Be careful to underestimate the influence your choice has on others, your choices have on others. Be careful to underestimate the jealousy of God. And finally, be careful of underestimating the judgment of God. You see, God's interception of the messengers through Elijah, his rebuke of the king, and the deliverance of his prognosis does not sit well with the king. And Elijah is summoned. And we read about that in verses 5 to 17. Having talked earlier about the power of influence, I want us to notice the ultimate power and influence of the solid law of the sovereign Lord and his word. We read in verse 5, we see the king's messengers return to the king after they had run into Elijah. Have you never even got close to Ekron to inquire of Beelzebub as Ahaziah had instructed? That is why the king was so surprised when he saw them and asked them, why have you come back? Knowing that Ekron was some distance away, he knew that there's no way that they had gone there and made it back so soon. And so how did they respond in verse 6? A man came to meet us, they replied. And he said to us, go back to the king who sent you and tell him this is what the Lord says. It is, because, is it because there's no God in Israel that you're sending messengers to consult Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you will not leave the bed you're lying on. You will certainly die. They repeated the word of the Lord that was given to them by the prophet Elijah. And I find this so ironic how the king sent messengers to inquire of a false god and now he himself is being queried by the one true God through his own messengers and they end up telling him, you're not going to leave this bed and you're going to certainly die. Isn't that ironic? Ahaziah, confronted by his messengers with evidence 
of the sovereign Lord's power and the form of the word of the Lord was at a place where he had to make a choice. Either he must give up his self-deceiving belief system, acknowledge his vulnerability, and embrace the word of the Lord, or he has no choice but to become even more fixed and adamant in his false sense of being in charge. And when we read in verse 8, once he realizes it was Elisha the Tish, Elijah the Tishbite, who his father's enemy, who ended up giving his messengers the message to deliver him, he becomes fixated with arresting Elijah. Unfortunately, he had made his choice. And so in, chapter, in verse 9, we see he sends out the initial military of 50 soldiers and one captain to tell Elijah, man of God, the king says, come down. And how does Elijah respond in verse 10? If I am a man of God, may fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 men. Then fire fell from heaven and consumed the captain and his men. Wow. The military officers were no match for the power of Yahweh as seen through Elijah. Then we go down to verse 11, and we see Ahaziah still fixed and adamant in his false sense of being in charge, sends a second unit. How would you like to get that call? You know what's happened to the first 51, and all of a sudden you get to go, hey, I need you to go do me a favor. Go to the top of the hill, and you'll meet this guy named Elijah. So he sends another 51 men, but this time his message was even sterner to Elijah. The captain said, man of God, this is what the king says, come down at once. And in verse 12, we see Elijah responds the same way to the demands of the messengers that he did the first military unit. And once again, God proves that the military officers are no match for the power of Yahweh through Elijah and are again consumed by fire. As one author said, when human power competes with divine power, it often yields tragic outcomes. Be careful of the choices we make. You would think after seeing the power of God completely destroyed two of his companies of soldiers, Ahaziah would have had a change of heart. But as one author notes, when leaders or anyone put their trust in others, in false controls over their destiny, it can breed a misuse of power. And that's exactly what happens. He recklessly sends a third unit after 102 have already been killed, and he sends the third. You thought the guy who got the second call was nervous? Imagine getting the third call to go to King Elijah. Wow, to go to Elijah the prophet. But what's interesting is that the captain of the third unit of men approached Elijah in a very different way, didn't he, than the first two captains. And falling on his knees, he asked Elijah, please have respect for his life and the lives of 50 men, whom, interestingly, he calls your servants to Elijah. And what happens? Fire, fire, mercy. Fire, fire, mercy. God withholds. And in verse 15, rather than consuming the men with fire, the angel of the Lord tells Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. And so Elijah got up and went down with him to the king. At this point, it appears as if the king's messengers finally got their way. King Ahaziah has won. It's what he wanted was for Elijah to come and meet him face to face. But in reality, it had nothing to do with the power of Ahaziah or his military messengers, but everything to do with the power and sovereignty of God. God released Elijah and said, you go with him. Do not be afraid. 
And so he goes down to the king, and when Ahaziah has his request finally fulfilled to meet his nemesis face to face, the result is nothing more than a repetition of the critical question and his prognosis, which he had already heard. You see, this apparent conflict between Elijah and the king's messengers, in reality, all along, was a conflict between King Ahaziah and God Almighty. And each of the king's actions moved him toward the judgment reserved for him because of his rejection of the God of Israel. As Christians, the events recorded in 1 Kings chapter 18, where on Mount Carmel all the prophets of Baal were killed, and the actions that we see here in 1 Kings 101, innocent lives gone, innocent in the sense of they did nothing wrong but were all born, born sinful, may seem overly harsh, but we must not forget that God is just and judges relentless rejection. These events make an important point. The rejection of the one true God is a matter of life and death. Don't underestimate God's judgment. Yes, temporary consequences for rejecting God can be severe. We've seen it in the passage we read this morning. But they are nothing compared to the eternal consequences of rejecting the one true God. And my fear is maybe we have got so comfortable that we have underestimated the just punishment that is coming to those who reject God. Listen to what it says in Matthew 25, verses 41 and 46. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 89, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And as in light of this just judgment that God is going to issue, that is why there is no greater display of God's love and why I get so excited of his love and his power than when we see him sending his one and only son to die in your place, to die in my place, and that by placing our faith in him, we might be saved from God's wrath, which I've just read about. That's why Romans 5, 8, and 9 is amazing. But God demonstrated his own love for Calvin Caulfield in this. While I was still a sinner, Christ died for me. Since I have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall I be saved from God's wrath through him? If you have somehow underestimated God's judgment and therefore underestimated how great his salvation is for you, read that verse and insert your name. You will not underestimate his grace for you. And so I ask the question, what assurance do you have? What assurance do I have that I will never hear, depart from me, I never knew you, you evildoer. Do you have that assurance today that you will never hear those words? If you don't, you can have that assurance today. I had no clue and I'm going to apologize before I even start if I get emotional. I had no clue at the start of this week when I was preparing my message how God was going to demonstrate that to me in my own life this week. I got a call from my aunt on Wednesday up in Ottawa. 
She said, your Uncle Gary's asking if you'll come see him. They've moved him into palliative care in the hospital. They've stopped life support, and they've stopped his cancer treatments. So Jen and I headed up Friday night, dropped some things off at the farm, headed to Ottawa yesterday morning, and I went to the hospital to see my uncle. My Uncle Gary's a fantastic guy. He's my dad's brother. Very generous man, so skilled and talented with mechanical stuff, just a very generous person. But I never knew where Uncle Gary was at in terms of his walk with the Lord or even if he had a walk with the Lord. And so I went into his room and there he was. He caught me by surprise because he's such an active person and there he is lying on the bed. And, and uh, we started to talk and, and I knew that God was preparing him. He said to me, Calvin, I don't have the faith that you're... Aunt Judy has. She has great faith. I said, no, she doesn't. God is great, and he gives us faith to believe. She simply received it, and she believes. He said, I've tried to be good. I said, Uncle Gary, being good doesn't count. And then he looked at me. I didn't even have to probe him, and he said, I want to be sure. I want assurance. I said, Uncle Gary, you can be sure today. And I invited him to pray for me. And there in that little hospital room in Almont, my uncle, as loud and unashamed as he was praying like a little kid, confessed to God that he was a sinner. Confessed that he believed Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He confessed that he believed God raised him from the dead three days later. And based on what the Bible tells me, he was saved. And you know what happened? I saw a transformation in my own eyes of the peace that comes to a mind and a heart that has no insurance, assurance. And all of a sudden he said, I know we're not supposed to hold hands, but can we hold hands? I said, yes, we can hold hands. And there I watched my uncle yesterday afternoon receive his assurance, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the seal of our salvation, the deposit guaranteeing what is to come for those who have put our faith in Jesus Christ. If you don't have that assurance, you can have that today. Romans 10, 13 says, everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you. I left that hospital yesterday crying. Thank you, God, for being patient for 81 years for my Uncle Gary. That's amazing grace. He's not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I'm going to give you that opportunity at the end of the service. If you don't have assurance, you can receive that assurance today. If you have that assurance of your salvation, then rejoice. Rejoice. We can't be walking around as quiet ambassadors and witnesses of the amazing grace that we have received. We will never face the eternal, just wrath of God for our sins. Praise the Lord. That's amazing. That's why during this whole COVID pandemic, the verse that has been just keeps coming back to my mind and filling my heart is return unto me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. God's wrath has been averted through Jesus Christ. Praise God. Elijah's ministry ends on a high note. God is always has the last word. The king dies and Elijah does not die 
or ever die. And we'll learn about that next week. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes, please. I told you earlier in the service, I was going to give you an opportunity if you, through God's Word and through the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, have been convicted of choices you are making, ways you are living that you know are risking arousing the anger and discipline of God upon you, repent. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just and He will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And so I'd ask you this morning, God cannot be mocked. If there's things going on in your life that you know are risking the, arousing the anger of God, every head is bowed, every eye is closed. As a statement of faith and confession, I'm just gonna ask you to stand where you are and I'm gonna pray for you. Stand where you are. If you know there are choices you are making, things in your life, that are potentially risking, arousing the anger and discipline of God, stand. Thank you. If you're here this morning and you are not sure, 100%, Pastor Calvin, I'm not sure if I will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. I'm nervous that I may hear, I never knew you, away from me, you evildoer. I want you to leave here today assured as my uncle was assured yesterday. Stand, and I'm going to pray for you that God will give you that assurance today. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you're so gracious that you give us the opportunity to be warned before we make ridiculous decisions that have significant consequences for our own lives and those around us. Thank you for warning us today about the power of influence. Thank you for warning us and reminding us you are a jealous God. You love us. You're so zealous for us. You won't tolerate rivals in our lives. And thank you for reminding us of your judgment. But not only your judgment, but your grace in providing a way of escape. And so God, I pray for my brothers and sisters who are standing here this morning as an act of obedience, Lord, to your word, responding to the work of your spirit in their lives. For those who are making choices that are risking the arousal of your anger and your discipline, I pray, God, that as they stand, Lord, and as they confess their sins to you, thank you that you will forgive them. Take that burden away from them. Remind them that they're yours and that you love them and that you will provide a way of escape in the time of temptation. So help them, Father, I pray. And for those, Lord, who are struggling with assurance this morning, Lord, if they've never accepted you as their personal Savior, I pray that they will call out to you today. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, help them to call out to you, I pray. And if they are believers and they're doubting, then God, give them that assurance today. The indwelling presence of your Holy Spirit, the seal, the deposit guaranteeing what is to come for those who belong to you. Please, Father, help them not to worry about that anymore because you can take care of that for them today. Father, we love you. Thank you for this day. For those of us who by your grace have been saved, oh God, help us to be people who rejoice. Restore unto us the joy of your salvation and grant us a willing spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.